1: It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing on with our study of the book called Homecoming written by yours truly, Earl A. Clampett. Uh, The subheading under the title Homecoming is how the mystery of the New Covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And um, although we were speaking about the two separate camps of Gentiles and Jews dealing with uh, their own sacred cows, so to speak, that had to be dealt with before this One new man in Christ Jesus, this one new man in Yeshua HaMashiach, which is his name in Hebrew, can come together uh, per Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. It talks about this being a mystery. Um, But it's really important for us to understand um, the intent of what the Father is doing in this... Putting together these two groups, uniting them together. And in earlier shows, we've discussed um, how there's a reference that um, Jesus is knocking down or um, demolishing the wall of enmity that separates both Jew and Gentile, preventing them from worshiping a mutual father. And acknowledging that they have a mutual enemy, Um, but it talks about uh, in Ephesians chapter two, God building something, and what that's what we talked about last week. Um, We talked about God is in the construction business, and He's doing a construction project, and um, it's a blueprint um, of how He's rebuilding His original design, His original intent on how he wanted his kingdom to operate, how he wanted his kingdom to um, function in the material creation. And, of course, we talked about the blueprint is seen in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and then, of course, the spiritual rebellion that begins in heaven comes down out of heaven in Genesis 3 and uh, basically uh, tricks mankind into handing over his Um, divinely given authority over to Satan, and we know um, the result that that has produced ever since, which is chaos, disorder, disobedience, disharmony, Um, everything that you can imagine that rebellion against God brings on. And so um, Paul refers to this One New Man construction project in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's talking about something that's really inexplicable when you first look at it. And um, the Jewish Bible calls this working of God a secret plan. And... um, The New King James talks about Paul's writing or description of this putting together of this project, this construction project, bringing these two groups together as a mystery. And it's important to understand the significance of what this entails. Uh, Paul explains in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, just as a brief review, He's saying that once, 2.11, chapter 2, verse 11, he says we have to remember that once you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, um, that you were without Christ. You didn't know Christ. You were aliens. You were foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel. And you also you were strangers from the covenants of promise. Those covenants were, of promise were made between Father God and the Jewish patriarchs, going all the way back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, etc, uh, between God and uh, Abraham and then later Isaac and then later Jacob. And we talked about how those covenants really um, were designed to uh, benefit. Uh, we as Gentiles as intended beneficiaries of these promises. In in essence, the Jews were supposed to be a prototype or an example of how to have a relationship with God, but that example was supposed to serve as the light to the nations to say this is how you get to know God. This is how you experience eternal life because knowing God is eternal life. We've talked about that at great length in John 17.3. And they didn't do a particularly good job, um, as is point at, pointed out um, by Paul. I think I want to refer you to this so you can take a look at it. It's in um, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, you know, Paul points out that, um, I'll just read it from me from the New King James, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud that all passed through the sea, talking about the trip of uh, leaving Egypt, being called out of Egypt and called to follow Moses into the desert and then eventually into the inheritance of the promised land. And he points out in 10 too, he says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate from the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then verse 5 in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, referring to the experiences of those Jews leaving Egypt and uh, traversing the in the wilderness to get to know God, as we saw in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, God's motivation was to bring his children back into a place where they could not be independent. They had to learn how to depend on God, how to trust in God, how to have faith in God for everything. Food, water, directions, everything. And so Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as some of them were. And as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 123,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, in verse 10, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And verse 11, now all these things happened to them, here you go, as examples, as examples. This is New Testament saying, read and understand and pay attention what happened in the Jewish Testament. What was successful as as far as following God's plan to return to him? And what was not successful? Learn from those examples. So I'll read verse 11 again. Where are we? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 out of the New King James. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. That's a $25 word that were written for our warning, upon whom the ends of the ages have, have come. And so basically, we have to ask ourselves, are we living in such a time where the ends of ages have come, where God is trying to explain, I have a plan, I have a blueprint. I am trying to build something. And what we talked about last week when we started this chapter 11 out of the book of Homecoming, that in Isaiah 66, chapter 1, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, the Father clearly asks a lot of questions, makes some statements, and makes it clear that he's in the, he's in the um, process. He's on a track to build a house where he can rest. And I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to just invite you to go into the KPRZ podcast, listen to that previous show. But it's basically talking about he's in the building process of abodes, domiciles, residences, homes in which he can dwell, in which he can indwell. And so we talked about all of the verses in in, um, John 14 and John... 15, John 16, John 17, also in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Uh, also in Revelations 3, verse 20, in John 17, 20 through 23, it's everywhere that God is building homes. He's looking for a place in which he can indwell, where he can finally have his rest. And Part of this one new man in Messiah, one new man in Jesus mystery um, is described as a construction project if you read um, the book of Ephesians. Especially in in chapter 2, he talks about the foundations of, well, first of all, the cornerstone of this building being Jesus himself. Uh, cornerstone is so critical for holding the, all the pieces of the building together. you got to have a cornerstone. Um, and there are several references that the Messiah will operate, will function as this cornerstone. He brings all of the family divisions, all of the family separations, all of the family groupings together. And then he talks about, uh, Paul talks about also in Ephesians 2, about um the foundations being the Jewish apostles and the Jewish prophets, talking about this great day when the Messiah comes and he's going to basically make us one in him with the idea, the ultimate idea of saying, by the Spirit, through the Son, we all come back to the Father. That's God's construction plan plan for a family reunion to bring his lost children, his separated children, ever since Genesis chapter 3, after the rebellion basically blew up everything of God's blueprint, he's now restoring his original blueprint by bringing through the Son and by his Spirit all of his children back to him. And those three prepositions are really critical because that shows you all three phases of the Godhead, how they're operational to accomplish this goal. And the goal is God. The goal is restoring our relationship with our Father, not dying and going to a place. That's not the goal. It never has been. It's very clear in the Scripture everywhere. Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets, he didn't say heaven, he says, no one gets to the Father but through me. We really have to shift our thinking on this, because if we don't know the goal that the Scripture explains, um, it's kind of like heading out on a on a road, and you see the road sign saying, go back, turn around, and you ignore it. Well, it it's not, destiny is not going to be, a good end for you with that trip. And unfortunately, we as Gentiles, when we disconnected from our Hebrew roots, when we disconnected from our Jewish foundations, when we don't talk about Jesus Christ being the Jewish Messiah, about the fact that he's King of kings and Lord of lords, but he's the King of the Jews. He was the king, he is the king, and he will be the king of the Jews. In fact, he's going to be king over everybody when he comes back to establish his father's kingdom back on earth. It's a circular story. It is a cyclical circular story. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything comes back full circle repeats itself i wrote a book back in 2008 called the blueprint is bible design is god's bible design hebrew circular or is it greek straight line linear if we try to make it a mix and match it's a disaster of confusion if we try to mix and match linear with circular it is nothing but confusion it's incoherent it's incongruent It makes no sense. We have to understand the context of our experience that it is Hebrew in its foundation, in its culture, in its language, in its covenants, and we are brought in as the goal to bring all of the other non-Hebrew nations also back. To our Father, our mutual Father. Okay, so let's move on. So where we left off uh, last week, we were in the chapter eleven, solving the mysterious construction project of one new man in Messiah, and we left off last week that in John um, chapter ten. Specifically, verse 16, Jesus is saying, I also have other sheep who are not from this pen. He was talking earlier about the sheep knowing his voice. And he talks about, I need to bring them, and they will hear my voice. Now, when he brings the two groups of sheep together, these two different pens, and he says, and there will be one flock, one shepherd, That's Jew and Gentile coming together. And it's interesting that when Jesus is praying in John 17, listen for this notion of two groups and for them coming together. This is Jesus' last prayer to the Father the night before he dies. So this is kind of his... Um, Most important thing that he's probably doing a summation of all of what he's explained to the apostles at the Last Supper, which is John chapter 14, the whole chapter of John 15, the whole chapter of John 16, and the whole chapter of John 17. Now, look how he wraps things up. He says, I do not pray for these alone. He's praying to the Father now, but also for those so we have two different words here i do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe that's a future tense in me through their word whose word the word of the these and the who are the these they were the jewish apostles who were participating in the in the last supper they were all sitting there and so they understood this dynamic of what Jesus was explaining to them, that he was the new covenant. This is the new covenant in his blood, that he, as the Jewish Messiah, was fulfilling all of the promises of the Hebrew covenant, saying, I'm through your seed, I will save the nations, because you, Abraham, will be the father of many nations, plural not talking about jews it's talking about the goyim it's a jewish word for the in the plural for gentiles the people of the nations that's all gentiles means but check out this phrasing of this last prayer i do not pray for these alone but also for those who will who will believe in me through their words so basically he's describing the the acts uh, Church, after the Holy Spirit, falls in Pentecost. Uh, the initial believers were all Jewish, but when it went out to the Gentile culture, no one expected the tsunami of Gentiles pouring in from all different areas. And that's exactly the answered prayer of the Father that Jesus was praying that night of the last supper I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe me through their word don't forget Jesus explained over and over hey the gospel is to the Jew first and that's why the order of what happens here what rolls out in John 17:20 now he he goes on there's a comma there and he goes father that they all may be one well, who's supposed to be one in the context of what we we're just seeing with John seventeen twenty? Go one line up. Who's supposed to be one? That they all may be one. Well, who was he just praying for? He was praying for the Jewish apostles who were attending the Last Supper. But he also said, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. There are two groups there. And in the very next line, he's praying to the Father, And he says that they all may be one. That's what Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. Check it out. Also in Galatians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3. Check it out. Also in Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. Those are all one new man, chapters. And here Jesus on the night before he dies is saying, Father, my request is that these two groups, these this Jewish group that's in this room with me, and for those who will believe in me through their word—in other words, the future Gentile groups—that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. No, this didn't say with. They're saying in. This is very intimate. This is very deep. This is very profound. This is life-changing. Because we're talking about embodiment, God coming inside, not alongside, inside of us. That's what transforms us. If we will open ourselves up to that entry point and say, you come in and run my life. I need your kingdom, which is another word for God's government. Every time God's government shows up, there's order. Every time God's government shows up in the form of kingdom, there's peace, peace. Every time God's government shows up, there is life. that's what we all foundationally seek is order and life and peace and rest. We're at rest with God when we're in his government where we are saying, thy will be done out of the Lord's prayer. We're saying, Father, I'm out of control. And if you don't run my life, I'm a mess, I'm a disaster on wheels, and I need you to take over. That's the power of the Lord's Prayer. Bring your government down to earth. Well, where are we when we pray that? We're here on terra firma, on our future inheritance, right here, right now. That they also may be one in us. Now here's, what's the point? What's all this oneness about? What's all this union about? What's all this unity about? And here it is. Here's the here's the reason that the world may believe that you sent me, you being a capital Y, you Father sent me the Son. When the world sees these two groups who were formally divided, formally separated, formally f- far apart coming together, worshiping together, a mutual father, then everything changes because finally people will see that these people who are calling themselves sons of God, children of God, believers, they are imaging the presence of God, of the Father, just as Jesus' son imaged his father, everything he did. He says, look, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the father. That's what he told Philip. He said, look, the works you see me do, these are the works of the father. The words you hear me say, these are the works of the father. Why? Because he indwelled the father and the father indwelled him. And he's saying, I want the same thing for your other children. So in other words, the these groups of Jews comes together with the, those groups of Gentiles, these and those. That's what it says in John 17, John seventeen twenty. These and those. Those seem like innocuous words, kind of just um, adjectives, but they're huge when you look at the significance of it, what's happening. The outside world will finally believe that Father God has sent his son to deliver the world from the captivity and the bondage and the power of the adversary. When the world sees both Jew and Gentile worshiping God together, the same God, the enemy knows that he is defeated. He knows that he is vanquished. We'll talk about that more on the other side of the break. Put on your seatbelts, get ready. God bless. Welcome back, saints. So we are right in the middle of looking at the book, Homecoming, that I authored and it got published last year. And it's called Homecoming for a reason. We're coming home. Um, we're <laughs> Homecoming is very special. I mean, when you come home, you expect to what see, if, at home, you expect to see family, don't you? Don't you usually expect to see family? It's kind of like the prodigal son. When he finally returned and he realized that living outside of God's will wasn't such a great idea, he discovered that the pigs in the troughs were eating better than he was. That's when he decided, you know what? I blew it. I need to repent. I need to change the way I think. I need to go back home. And that's basically uh, what we're talking about in this um, blueprint plan of God. And I wanted to read through uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 and pick up where we left off from the last half hour. Um, to demonstrate how God will bring Jews and Gentiles together um, as two groups of children with a mutual father, I point out that we should note these three key unifying prepositions. Prepositions are something we don't pay attention to very often, but these are huge. These are very important. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, 17 through 18, uh, talking about Jesus, talking about Yeshua, he said, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's talking about Gentiles. We were the ones who were separated. Um, and we were brought near by the blood. But I went, let, me, let me just finish this up. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Okay, now that's referring to the Jews because the Gospels do the Jew first. That's what Romans uh, tells us in the early chapters of 1 and 2. For, here you are, the three prepositions. For through him, that's a capital H, and that's referring to Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit. So through Jesus, we both groups, we both have access by one one Spirit, that's a capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. That's what this is all about. That's how God rebuilds his kingdom on earth. That's how God reestablishes his plan to have man, being having been given dominion over the material creation, was supposed to take on the likeness of God. In other words, have a deep intimate relationship with god that's how you get the likeness you receive that deposit down from god vertically to you when you open up your mind you open up your heart to him and say i want you to live not just alongside of me i want you to live inside of me and that's how the likeness gets deposited and then your job from that point your purpose is to image out to the world in a horizontal way In a horizontal fashion, kind of like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was radiant, so much to the point that the Hebrews couldn't even look at his face. They had to put a kind of a bag over his face because they couldn't stare at him. He had been in the presence of God for 40 days. So that's what you call imaging. You're so full of God that people hear it when you speak. They see it. Um, just in your countenance. They see it in your actions. And it's the same thing that Jesus, as the Son did when he was here. He was imaging the Father because he got downloads from the Father. He always went to desolate places to pray, to get away from the apostles. That's how, that's where he was filling up the tank, and he was getting one-on-one with the Father and you know refilling that empty tank. So God is sovereignly bringing together all of the component parts of his new residential dwelling structure why am i using that because latin last week's show and again just go back to it you can go on to um, my website as well which is simple truth go over to the media page and all the podcasts are listed there that we do with kprz by title and description and so go back go to last week's show and it talks about Isaiah sixty six, um, verses one and two, where God's talking about, Where's the house that you will build for me? I know I'm God. I know that I've made heaven and earth. All my hand my hands made all these things. He declares that. But he asks this question and he says, But where's the house you will build for me? And of course we immediately think out of its context, well, brick and mortar and wood and cement and all this sudden, And it's like, no. In verse 2 of Isaiah 66, he says, To this one will I look, who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. And then we discover, wait a minute, he's talking about a human being, that we're the house. And so, anyway, I'm not going to go over those verses. They're available in last week's show. But I say here on page 256, God is sovereignly bringing together all of the component parts of his new residential dwelling structure through and by and to. That's what we just saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. That is through Messiah Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, to get back to our Father. And then I ask, is there any other reason why this new uh, construct, this new building, is so important at this stage of, of God's rebuilding plan, and I advocate, let us not forget that God still has a problem on his hands. Um, he has a problem on his hands on earth. He has a problem on his hands in the second heavens, and he has a problem on his hands within us as his human children, even post-initial salvation, and I describe that problem. It's one word. It begins with an R. It's called Rebellion. The rebellion truce started in the second heavens, came down and invaded earth, and we made the biggest mistake in our lives when we handed over our authority over to the enemy by believing his lies about Father God's nature and character and his trustworthiness. And so that rebellion still exists within us, and God is in the business of doing away with the rebellion on earth, inside his children, and also in the second heavens. That's why we're at war. That's why we're at spiritual warfare. And I say on page 256, as such, the construction of one new man in Jesus, one new man in Christ, one new man in Messiah, as described in chapters 2 and 3, has to include the next verse in Ephesians, not just Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, but also Ephesians chapter 4. And I ask the question, what is so important about Ephesians chapter 4? In the sense of solving this mysterious one-new-man construction project. On 257, I say, we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that what Satan intended for evil by dividing the communities, by dividing the nations with the division of the tribes and divisions of families, God, the Father through his son's obedience to the point of death, if you notice what I mean by that, is that in the garden that gets sent to me, Jesus all says, if it's possible that this cup pass from me, but then he says, nevertheless, he says, not my will, but thine be done. He's basically saying, even if it kills me, I'm going to do your will, Father. And that's what broke the back of Satan's rebellion. And here's something that I'm going to just put out there, and you pray about it, but I think that we all have to eventually pray that way, that doesn't matter what it costs. The only thing that's going to bring us life is to do thy will be done. To, I mean, you, I don't know if you remember, um, I think it was in uh, Matthew 19, where um, he, this young man comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life, O good teacher? And he says, you know, he says, why do you call me good? Only the Father's good. Um, he, he he basically says, Jesus, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, look, if you want to live, you want to have life, keep the commandments. And, of course, he says, well, I've kept the commandments because I think Jesus listed four out of the ten. He says, yeah, I've kept all those. And, see, this is a matter of not checking boxes or making the Torah into legalism at all. What it's talking about is, What is your heart? Who's your king? Who are you sold out to? What's your relationship with God like? And then Jesus, knowing the rich young ruler's heart, he says, okay, you did, you did all those, but you still want to have life. There's just one more thing. Go and sell all your possessions, because Jesus knew this man's heart. And he says, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Well, you know what happened. Um, that exposed the condition of the young man's heart. His idol was uh, were his possessions. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he walked away sad. So when we're talking about Jesus praying in the garden, His message is: even if it kills me, I will do Thy will be done. Your Your will, Father. That's why You sent me. And when he prayed that way, it delivered the knockout blow to the kingdom of rebellion, of the second heavens, of the kingdom of the occult. And that prayer demolished the wall of division that separated God's two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. That's what it says. Jesus, as Messiah, knocked down the wall of enmity, of division, keeping the two children's groups of Jew and Gentile divided, separated. And I go on to say that wall of division was built on animosity, of antagonism, of rancor, occasioned by the Torah being turned into legalism by the Pharisees and the Sadducees with its commands, which are set forth in their ordinances and their rituals and their observances and all the check-the-box stuff, turning God's law, moral law, into a bunch of legalistic rules. And um, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. You're looking at the law. I am the new covenant. That answers the question in John, uh, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, when Father God's having that discussion with his son. He says, you are the new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31 and in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews chapter 10, it's talking about the new covenant being placed inside of us, placed in our minds and written on our hearts. That's called embodiment of God inside man. That's where all this is going. And I point out that that wall of separation, that wall of enmity is destroyed as Messiah Jesus, Jesus, our Messiah, gathers to himself the two separated groups of Jew and Gentile, thereby creating a unity of what Paul calls one new man or a uh, single new humanity. I think that's the way it's phrased in the Jewish Bible, thus making peace, shalom, that's, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Yeshua, Jesus, becomes the incarnation of the new covenant, the embodiment, if you will, of the new covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31, as well as those two chapters in chapters 8 and 10 of of Hebrews. When we allow Jesus, Yeshua, to fulfill his mission of Embodying us, incarnating us, indwelling us. All of this was done so that both groups, Jew and Gentile, as a single body, could be reconciled, brought back together through him as son, by one spirit, back to Abba Father. Now in Genesis, I mean Ephesians chapter three, we see that God's A mysterious plan includes uh, us Gentiles becoming united with uh, Messiah Jesus, Messiah Yeshua, as he's known in Jewish circles. As a result, we become united to one another, brothers, sisters, becoming members of a joint body as joint heirs, H-E-I-R-S, and joint sharers, S-H-A-R-E-R-S, sharers, with our Jewish brethren, in all that God has covenanted, promised in his compacts, in his covenants with the patriarchs of his chosen people. And I, and I sum up this way. I said, the rollout of this mystery has been kept hidden for ages, and it's designed so that—here's the purpose— Here's the reason what God, why God is doing this. You'll find this in Ephesians chapter 3, 9 through 11. Check it out. He, Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11. The rollout of this mystery kept hidden for ages is designed so that the authorities and the rulers, that is, the principalities and powers in the heavenlies, it's talking about the fallen um, angels who exist in the second heavens, will learn just how broad and how without any limitations is the manifold wisdom of the Father. Manifold just means many-sided. The many-sided wisdom of the Father is, as shown, as evidenced by the creation of this new, because this is new, messianic communities of Jews and Gentiles together. Now, what is that messaging? It's saying that I put mankind in charge of running the material creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I've never changed my mind in spite of what happened in Genesis chapter 3 where everything blew up because the rebellious angels were given legal permission to operate here by Eve and then later by Adam. And so, in Ephesians chapter 4, it's talking about us going from a infant stage to a mature adult stage in Ephesians chapter 4. So, all this sounds nice as theory in Ephesians 2, about the two groups coming together, and, and that God wants to put on display to the principalities and the powers, the rebellious powers in the heavenly, that he picked man and he never changed his mind. But what does that look like when you actually live it out, roll it out? And that's what Ephesians chapter 4 is all about. Um, I point out that in that chapter, chapter 4, God's plan for mankind can finally be seen. First, we as divine family members are to try to discover what our giftings are our heavenly giftings, those that God deposited on us and to us after we became initially saved. And then next we are to seek God's fivefold ministries and be equipped for works of service that will build up the body of Messiah. In other words, we need to go to boot camp. We need to go to have our field manual handed to us to say, hey, welcome to the family, but welcome to the army because there's a war going on. And this war's over your uh, future, your destiny. Ultimately, what will be produced is a complete, here you go, fully perfected, God-designed, mature man who obeys God instinctively, who obeys God instinctively. Don't forget, why is that a big deal? Because the problem that God has is called rebellion ever since chapter 3 of Genesis. It penetrated the earth and poisoned it. And this is why we talk, we've we talked to them three, four weeks ago about the perversion of grace, it being some sort of ongoing amnesty that we never have to change and that we just don't have to obey God. That's not the gospel. That's not the word of God, of God transforming us as opposed to transporting porting us. And I go on to say on page 258 the days of our spiritual infancy, when we were children, um, will be behind us because we will no longer be deceived, no longer tricked, no longer taken a, a advantage of by the tactics of the enemy through his misleadings or false teachings. He is the father of lies. We see that in John chapter 10. That's what Jesus called him. He says "He there's no truth in him. And so this is a war of information. What, what is true and what is false? What is false will kill us because it separates us from God. What is true will unite us to God and we will live. So the goal is that we will have finally grown up in Messiah Jesus, the head of this newly formed body of Christ called One New Man in Messiah Jesus. We will be trained, we will be experienced, and we will be prepared for the adversaries, for Satan's maneuverings and his tactics and his manipulations with our mind and how we think and how we operate we will learn our functions and our roles in this body of Jew and Gentile together. We will learn to do our part. We will experience individual and body part growth and observe the overall growth and maturing of Messiah's corporate body as well. So it's an individual walk. It's an individual experience. But we're part of a bigger um, family that's going on, a bigger nation. And notice the words, going back to Ephesians 2. He says, hey, when you Gentiles came in, you know, through the blood that brought you near, you know what you became when you became born again? And we said, yeah, we became members of the church. That's not what Paul said. He said, you know what you became? You became part of the commonwealth of Israel. Go check it out. I'm not making this up. You're part of the commonwealth of Israel. God is bringing Jew and Gentile together. All right. We will end up putting off our corrupt, thoroughly rotted, old man nature, by allowing our spirits and our minds to be renewed. Doesn't the scripture tell us that in Romans chapter 2? Two, two, it says, uh, transform yourself by the renewing of your mind so that what? So that you'll know what the perfect will of God is. If we don't engage in this, in this um, transition, this training of Ephesians chapter 4, and we don't experience this renewal of our minds, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Where's that? Well, uh, 2 Corinthians ten 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 uh, through um, 5, talks about us having to hand over our thought life to God. Well, I didn't learn that at the Billy Graham crusade. He never talked anything about that. No, he didn't. But it's part and parcel when you start to read all the epistles of Paul. He says, hey, uh, good start. You left Egypt. You got delivered from Pharaoh But you got to go to the University of God out in the desert when you leave Egypt. And before you get your inheritance, you got to learn who God is, how he operates, and what he expects of us. I know you don't hear this in many Gentile churches, but this is the real gospel. We will be spiritually clothed with our new nature created to be godly, which expresses itself in true righteousness and true holiness. Now, I understand the importance of imputed righteousness. I understand that and um, how important that is, that it's done through trust and through faith. But I also know that that imputation of righteousness is while the process of purification of our spirits, our mind and wills and emotion, our bodies are being undertaken— in this maturing of one new man, both individually and corporately, of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read it to you. Ephesians four eleven through 16. This is out of the complete Jewish Bible. I said, only then will we be able to fulfill the will of God in our, in our lives when we understand and experience what true righteousness is and true holiness. As Scripture tells us, God, here we go, gave some people as emissaries, some as prophets, some as proclaimers of the good news. The New King James say proclaimers are the evangelists, and some as shepherds, New King James calls that um, pastors, and teachers. When we take on the role God ordains for us, we will be ready to serve in ways that builds up the body of the Messiah until the time when we, here we here we are, we all arrive at the unity, it's talking the two groups becoming one, that results... From trusting and knowing the Son of God at full manhood, at the standard of maturity and perfection set by Messiah Jesus. We will no longer be infants, tossed about by the waves and blown along by every wind of teaching, at the mercy of people who are clever in devising ways to deceive us. No, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will. In every respect, grow up into him. see that process of maturity. We will grow up into him, who is the head, the Messiah, under his control, the whole body is in the process now here's listen to these this wording and remember what we talked about last week about this construction project, the foundation and all the pieces being held together. Check this out. this is in Ephesians four. Under his control, talking about, that's a capital That's that's talking about uh, Jesus. The whole body is in the process of being fitted and held together by the support of every joint with each part working to perform its function. You see how this is a construction project, not just individually, but also corporately. This is how the body grows and builds itself up in love. That's out of the complete Jewish Bible by David Stearns. That's Ephesians 4:11 through16. And this is Ephesians 4:24, and that you put on the one new man which was created according to God. Here it is, Ephesians 4:24. This is the threat to the adversary. Read this in true righteousness and holiness. That's out of the new King James. Ephesians 4:24. Read it in the New King James that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, here it is, in true righteousness and holiness. That's what the threat to the adversary is, because he's all about rebellion and disobeying God. And this process in Ephesians chapter 4 is all about learning obedience, producing true righteousness and true holiness, which brings us into the presence of God. Can you see now why the adversary will undertake every means within his influence to derail the coming together of God's perfect one new man in messiah wow we got to we got to end here we will see you next week read those verses that i told you about and we hope that you have many simple truth moments in this upcoming week god bless you Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal Simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K Praise